Hello and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are your podcast that travels through time to explore the historical context of the Bible. Um, I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I'm a journalist and I am here as always with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins and the head of the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. Hello, Helen. Hello there, Dave. How are you doing? I'm great. All right. So Helen and I just had a fascinating conversation with one of her colleagues, Anya Klein, and we'll we'll be talking to Anya here in a second. Um, so we we set the time machine, you know, to a period that we have not talked about at all on the podcast, which is the time right after the destruction of the first temple. We've talked a lot about the second temple on the podcast, but you know, the, there was a first temple. Sometimes they call it Solomon's temple. And that was destroyed in the 6th century by the Babylonians as part of this kind of famous exile of the of the kingdom of Judah. Um, and so, you know, Helen, did you know much about this period before we before we talked to Anya? Only vaguely. I mean, I did I did all this sort of stuff um, when I was a student, but because I specialize in the New Testament, you mm. know, it's all a little bit hazy, but. Um, I mean, what what I found really fascinating about this was was you know just the role that that this cataclysmic event sort of plays in terms of identity formation mm. and and even even texts and you know all of these things that we associate with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish people in antiquity. If it hadn't been for the for the exile, you know, it wouldn't have been there. And and, and it's a little bit like what happens later on with the, the, the fall of the second temple. You know, it's these mm. big events that kind of these world shaking events, particularly if you're living through them, that um, that leads to texts and identities and all of that kind of soul searching. And yeah, some really, really interesting things that Annie was raising here, I think. Yeah, well, I hope I hope our listeners, you know, pay attention and and kind of understand, like Helen said, the difference between kind of who you know the the people of the kingdom of Judah were before this destruction of the temple, before the exile, and then kind of you know the who we kind of think of as the Jewish people, and kind of who emerged on the other side of this exile with a new sort of sense of their identity as as God's people, with a new sense of who God was like monotheism um, might've really been born during this, this period, like Helen said of, of processing a, a traumatic event. So, you know, I, well, I just want to get to our conversation with Anya, but um, I, I hope everybody can appreciate what kind of big ideas are, are, are being talked about here. And uh, yeah, well, let's get to it. Thanks, Helen. Let's get back to the sixth century, getting right. ready with the dial. <laughs> Thank you. Dial it in. All right. Well, let me welcome our guest. We have Anya Klein. She is a senior lecturer in the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament at the University of Edinburgh. Anya, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Hi, Helen. Nice to see you. Hi, Dave. Hello. Hello, Anya. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Well, Anya, we really appreciate you being here. Please help us Help us kind of set the stage for our listeners. So 
where we've gone all the way back in our time machine to you know the 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 fifth sixth century uh, BCE. So, tell us about these two different Babylonian invasions that happened back then, and you know why did the Babylonians invade? What were they punishing the Judeans for, and how kind of ruthless was this punishment that they in- inflicted on them? So uh, let's set the stage. What do you know about ancient Israel in in this kind of time? At in this time. Oh man, you asking me, uh, Helen? Helen, what do you know? <laughs> Not that much either. It'd be good just to kind of set the scene. You know what are the Babylonians doing there anyway. Right. Okay, so you have to know um, what we think of ancient Israel were actually actually two kingdoms, two very small kingdoms, insignificant. So northern ki- northern hmm. kingdom of Israel was actually already gone by the by the seventh century, and what what we have is just a very small kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. And the problem is it's a threshold country. So if you look at the map, it's actually kind of a very strategic position from the north to the south and from the east to the west. And that just means that this small kingdom was completely at the mercy of whatever empire was kind of the power player at this time. Uh, And uh, the big power player at these times were Egypt and Babylonian, and Judah was kind of in the middle of these two. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I'm picturing the map. I can see this. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um, Yeah, so kind of a power play between Egypt and Babylonian. And what simply happened were that the kings of Israel were just uh, politically very unwise. (laughs) They were (laughs) ill-advised. They put their backs in the wrong basket, so to say. What Uh happened was that uh, it's around 600, the Babylonians lost the battle against Egypt. And we had King Jehorahim in um, in Jerusalem, and he just thought, "Oh, great! So um, I'll side with the Egypt. Mm. wasn't a very good plan." So Babylonians kind of um, came came to power again um, for a couple of years. Um, the, the the Judeans played ball, but then again they they put their hopes on Egypt and, and Nebuchadnezzar, who was um, the king of Babylon, simply wouldn't wouldn't kind of. Um, wouldn't kind of go along with this and said, I, I'm not going to be bothered by this little kingdom. So simply in 597, he invaded Jerusalem. Um, King Yehoiachim, he kind of got away. He died a bit earlier. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so actually his poor son <laughs> suffered the consequences. So he was mm. kind of exiled, taken to Babylon. There was a little bit of destruction in Jerusalem, but fairly, fairly all right. Um, but what uh, King Nebuchadnezzar did was he exiled uh, wide parts of the population to Babylon. And that actually kind of, yeah, that actually put a damper on everything. So um, Jerusalem, Judah was kind of um, they played ball to the Babylonians for the next for the next couple of years. Yeah, actually, King Nebuchadnezzar installed a sort of puppet king, King Zedekiah, mm. and he was installed by the Babylonians. And the system, yeah, the same thing played out again. So for a couple of years, King Zedekiah played ball. Um, he paid tributes to the Babylonians. Um, but then um, there was domestic political problems in Babylon and King Zedekiah, he simply thought, oh, I'll I'll take an advantage of that. So he stopped mm. tribute paying. I tell you, not a good idea. So you know what happened? <laughs> 587 King Nebuchadnezzar didn't bother kind of to take care of that himself. He just sent a general with his army. Again, same thing. They invaded Jerusalem, bit of destruction um, and uh, another wave of exile. 
And this was actually the end. Um, the Babylonians didn't even bother to install another king. They just um, left Jerusalem destitute and um, took the exiles. And that was actually the end of the southern kingdom. So when people talk about the, the the exile, this is what they're talking about, isn't it? The Jewish exile. It's it's this sort of double taking of people into into Babylonia. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's a big thing in the Hebrew Bible, and I think we'll talk about that later. But to be perfectly yeah, yeah. honest, this was daily life in the ancient East. Happened everywhere, <laughs> all the time. Hmm. Whenever one empire kind of invaded another, they took away a couple of population. Uh, actually, a very good working measure if you exile those that were trouble like Ela, um, the kind of upper upper how do you say the upper level of the population there was mm. peace um, you just destroy all the structures that are helpful for revolution so very easy measure very popular in the ancient days and worked mm. well for the Babylonians yeah so you talk about destroying you know structures and things like that so the the first temple was destroyed in the in the second invasion is that what we think yeah that's actually, what the bible tells us even the bible doesn't tell us that's the interesting okay. thing so there, there's a verse in uh, in the book of jeremiah i've got it here jeremiah 39 verse 8 but what it actually says is only that the temple was raided we didn't and actually we know from from other occurrences um the babylonians usually didn't bother to destroy the sanctuary so we actually don't hmm. know it's more likely that the temple was kind of plundered, but obviously that had consequences if the holy thing was invaded. Um, there is a Babylonian chronic which which uh, gives us at least for 597 a kind of evidence, external evidence that uh, Jerusalem was conquered. Um, for, for 587, there is no entry in that way. We only have the, the biblical hmm. notes. However... Uh, if you go to archaeology, we have destruction layers in Jerusalem. But again, um, the north uh, part of the wall apparently was destroyed. Southwestern parts of Jerusalem were destroyed. However, the Bible speaks of a wholesale destruction of the whole land. This is not yeah. what we can see in, in archaeology. There are destruction layers, but they are kind of isolated and uh, seem to be focused on Jerusalem. Couple of city uh, in in south of Jerusalem seem to have been destroyed, but we are not even sure if these were the Babylonians or if not other foreign mm. nations took advantage of this power vacuum. So yes, there was exile. That's what we can say. But it was apparently in in truth or in history less less of a bigger scale than it appears in the biblical mm. scriptures. So looking back, looking at the at the scriptures themselves, like clearly. Like you said, this was a it was cast as a you know really traumatic event of of a whole scale destruction of of Jerusalem of this of this exiling and and kind of you know destroying like you said the ending of the kingdom of Judah. So how do we how do we see that trauma kind of being processed in in different books of the Hebrew Bible? How 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 big of a role do we think it played in? In, in writing some of the prophetic books and, and things like that? That's a huge question. So okay. <laughs> let's start with the question, what is trauma and for whom did it happen in what form? Mm. So okay. just, just to go back, so there's a difference between what happened historically and what sure. happens in the scriptures. 
So a trauma comes from, from the humanities and has been uh, used from different scholars very fruitfully. The idea is that the destruction of Jerusalem was a traumatic event and that this is reflected in the scriptures. However, um, then we enter the first problem. Obviously, there was the historic trauma was less big than what the scriptures tell about. So it's mm. not like in psychology that an individual suffers a trauma and then is not able to kind of articulate that. What we have in the in the scriptures is rather it fits rather with the lens of cultural trauma. A cultural trauma means that a community kind of shapes an event as a traumatic event for themselves. It might not even have been kind of a big destruction, but they experience mm. this as a mm. trauma. And they construct a master narrative which supports group, so, group identity and solidarity. And I think that this works much, much better with the biblical writings because we have this everyday destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, no big deal. However, in the scriptures, it becomes this big shaping event that is taken up again and again and um, narrated again and again. And this this fits very well with this idea of a cultural trauma. Um, and uh, different to a psychological trauma, a cultural trauma is something which can be narrated, which is a claimed experience that can be told and retold. And again, we, we don't have access to the ancient authors. So I always find it very difficult to say, oh, they all suffered from PTSD. <laughs> Poor Jeremiah, <laughs> he's so traumatized. Um, I, I'm not making light of it, but uh, we have a different phenomenon. In the Hebrew Bible, authors narrate in very highly literature style of, mm. of an event. They describe experience. So I think this idea of a cultural trauma um, it has its problems, I think, but it works much, much better with the uh, biblical writings. So what what are the writings that we should, where, where does this come out, particularly um, in the biblical? Yeah, um, obviously Lamentations, um, Prophet of Jeremiah, Prophet Ezekiel, those are the books that are usually in the centre of these series. Lamentation is a series of poetic laments. Um, they use this identificatory figure of a female daughter Zion, which is kind of a personalization of um, the city of Jerusalem, but can also serve as an identificatory figure for the population. Yeah, this figure tells about the violations she has experienced, suffered by the hand of the Babylonians, laments her fate, accuses the God, and then the next, and the next text that she pleads for kind of re-acceptance. And it has an open end. So it's a text uh, which, uh, how do you say, um, it kind of gives voice to all these experiences which the, the population of Judah will most likely could have connected with. And again, then you've got um, Jeremiah. Um, there are kind of very drastic um, prophecies of judgment, lemons, the prophet kind of... <laughs> Actually, prophet of Jeremiah, he kind of laments all the time. I'm not quite sure if I would have wanted to spend time with him. He seems to kind of uh, lament his fate all over again. Um, this, uh, there are lots of books who kind of um, consider the prophet Jeremiah um, as a kind of figure in which the experience of the people is given a voice. And then obviously you've got Ezekiel, a prophet who, who has been um, forbidden by God to speak. 
So this has been used as um, as a kind of metaphor for not having a voice when you experience trauma. Yeah, so I find this a very useful view on the scriptures. However, I've come a bit away from this because not every text in the Hebrew Bible which stems from these times actually addresses trauma or deals with, with this traumatic experience of the destruction of Jerusalem. But actually, there are other kind of adversities and crises too, which are addressed. So, I want to I want to set the scene even again for the listener. But just this idea of when scripture was written. I, I think people who are just you know sort of casually readers of the Bible, we have an assumption that things are written down in some sort of chronological order. That you know the oldest books of the Bible were written first. And you just keep going through through the Hebrew Bible into the New Testament, and that's how it works. I know that scholars talk about this period of exile as like this kind of especially fruitful time for kind of the writing of Scripture, but also the compiling of, of the books of the Hebrew Bible. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Like, what do we think, how, how, how much of the Hebrew Bible do we think was either written or kind of edited together during this this period of, of exile after this kind of traumatic right. event? Uh, all right. Um, that's, a, that's a huge question. So the first thing to remember... I only ask huge questions. I'm yeah, sorry. I got this by now. <laughs> so um, the big problem is these texts have a kind of... Um, all the books in the Hebrew Bible have a narrative setting. So they seem to engage with figures during exile, they seem to engage with the time of the kings, they seem to engage with post-exilic figures and times. However, these texts were not written in the time that they narrate. There's a difference between um, what these, the narrative context and the historic context. And uh, to figure this out, it's much more messy than the New Testament. I'm sorry, oh. Helen, but I mean, yeah, we all know that the gospel that's the way I do it. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. <laughs> you know, if you put the Gospels, um, we all know they weren't kind of written. They are not newspapers that tell the stories of Jesus, but uh, they were f written fairly, fairly shortly after the death of Christ. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's completely different. So texts can pretend to be written in the fifth century, but they can stem from 100 years later. And while every scholar would agree that uh, that perhaps not Jeremiah was written exactly in the time that they this book tells about, there's a huge uh, huge span in between what what some scholars think is kind of the historical date for the books and what other scholars think. I actually I'm one of those radical German scholars who actually thinks that uh, the post-exilic time was a prolific prolific time span when most hmm. of the books were written. So I would date, let's say, 80% of the literature in exilic or hmm. even post-exilic times, Babylonian exile, hmm. Persian times, those were the heydays of the Hebrew Bible, so to say. That's what I think. And what was the reason? What was the reason for that? This this sort of flowering yeah. of literary activity was it? Was it really because it was the elites who'd been taken? Yeah, away? that's was that... that's one point. But the other point is, I mean, the destruction of Jerusalem is kind of a turning point, but I wouldn't say so much in in terms of trauma. But the problem is, up until five eighty seven, 
everything is actually fine. You've got a king, you've got a nation, you've got temple cult. Everything works well. So these are kind of big identity form formatting, mm. big, uh, how do you say, big elements that contribute to, to a stable identity. So actually there's no need to, to engage much in writing or think about your origins. You've got kind yeah. of a stable environment for religion and people to flourish. But when this broke away in 587, um, all those identity stabilizing factors were gone from one day to the next. And the usual thing, what normally happened whenever an empire was invaded, a little nation just fall down the cracks uh, in, in between those big power plays, they would kind of disappear into oblivion. So you've got nothing left from the Babylonian Empire apart from some clay tablets. Egypt, um, Persians, they all, yeah, we've got statues, but we don't have this bulk of biblical writings that we have from ancient mm. Israel. What happened? And we still don't really, yeah, it's one explanation that you've got these exiled Elite circles who apparently started to write. They processed these problems by writing. So they survived by writing say, um, yeah, scriptures, holy texts, they kind of shifted their identity from having this functioning cult and the king. They kind of transferred this into reflections in the writings. And it's one explanation that this e these Elite circles were kind of transposed to Babylon. But we had ex exhalations before, and this never mm. kind of um, led to such a big transformation. So... Mm. I wish I could kind of enter your time machine and uh, being kind of <laughs> transformed and just see why. I, I wish we could really, we have got some ideas why this happened, but uh, we are left to describe what happened. We don't really fully understand why this little insignificant kingdoms were sort of, um, yeah, preserved in their writings. I wish I knew. Hmm. Um. Well, so, okay. So you mentioned something that I found fascinating. This this idea of a people who existed, like you said, they had a kingdom, things were stable, their identity was formed around you know the temple and their kingdom and things like that, and then everything's destroyed. They're exiled. They're trying to figure out who are we now, you know, as a people without a place. Um, and then I just I I understand that maybe some in this period like the idea of being sort of God's chosen people that you can be his people, no matter where you are, maybe that started during this period. And even the idea of, of God as sort of the only God, like real monotheism might've happened in this period. Can you, can you talk about that? Uh, I left. Yeah. Um, you're spot on Dave. You could start with us tomorrow, actually. <laughs> so this oh, is, cool. this is exactly what happened. So, we, we assume there were already little little written things, little ideas, something like the Exodus narratives. There were these patriarchal mm. narratives, but they were kind of free-floating little stories. But what happened after the destruction of Jerusalem, people apparently reflected on these and they started to reconstruct their own identity. They put these stories together. They were thinking about... Um, the god um, Yahweh, that's the Hebrew name for the god that the biblical scriptures talk about, they were thinking about this god not only, not anymore as the god of a little kingdom, but they kind of transformed this god into a god of a specific people, the people of Israel. So mm. 
they gave their God a new story. They gave the people a new story. Um, yeah, and actually, I look at this phenomenon under under kind of the label of resilience. So it's how to deal with crisis, how to survive, and um, how how this culture survived by kind of rewriting their history. And they base their identity from now on on scriptures rather on a specific king, a city, um, mm. a religion. And in a sort of slightly perverse way, maybe if that hadn't happened, there wouldn't have been the the impetus for the writing. And, you know, if things had continued to be quite happy and no one had any need to write yeah. anything down, we might never have had Yeah, that. I mean, there might have been a really small decline of Jerusalem at one point or people moving away because actually I think life in Jerusalem must have rather bleak, must have been rather bleak at the time. And then perhaps this, this God would have just disappeared. It's exactly that. So this initial, this initial event, which kind of transformed everything. Wow. So, okay. So again, if we're trying to get our, wrap our heads around, you know, the chronology of, of when different concepts came up, I mean, would would then like things like the Ten Commandments, where you have that you know, first one saying you shall have no gods before me, things like that. Would that have been as late developing as this period? Yeah, I mean that's that's late. I would say that's that's really late. I mean, you need to you need to give it some time for for people to reflect for 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 things to sink in. So. I'm fairly sure that um, it's a big step from having all these different deities uh, swarming around. Then perhaps you start uh, putting more emphasis of a specific god and say, well, this is mine. I don't care about the others. At one point, you come to to the idea, there's only one and this is ours <laughs> and no, no other god exists. So you've got a kind of, it pops up first in Deuteronomy, I would say. Uh, so the, the second part of the prophetic book of Isaiah very clearly speaks of return from exile. So, yeah, end of exile, beginning of post-exilic time, I think this is where the seeds of monotheism are and that fits very well with what, what other people think. And, but um, from, from this idea that there's only one God to the Ten Commandments, where this one God kind of frames everything, it's still a long way to go, I'd say, but following this up, though, these are these are the fascinating things in our discipline. So, so tell us a little bit more about life in the in in, in ah, exile. Then, yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked about trauma and stuff, but, but it can't have all been bad because when they get the chance to go back, not everybody. No, does, it wasn't they? at all bad. So, um, <laughs> what we know is there are a couple of sources, some clay tablets from the Babylonian city names, actually. Life in life in Babylonia must have been pretty good. So they left in the center of an empire. While before Jerusalem was just <laughs> insignificant little village. It's it's like moving from Aberdeen to London. So no offense to Aberdeen, but actually it was a pretty good move for those people. And uh, they were thriving. I'd rather be in Aberdeen. <laughs> <laughs> they were thriving. We know from records that they weren't imprisoned or slaved, but they were given land, they could trade, some mm -hmm. of them became officials, they could marry people in the land, uh, they were completely integrated in Babylonian society, they became officials, they, they amassed wealth. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty success story of immigration. So we've got family names where one son was named after the Babylonian god, and the other son mm. had a theophoric element in the name named after the Hebrew god. So it must have been a pretty good life. 
So, yeah, um, obviously not not everyone wanted to move. I mean, just remember from 587 to, we actually think 539 is usually the date that is connected with the return. That That's a pretty huge time frame. And uh, people mm. weren't very old in this time, so usually two generations might have been passed. Mm. Why would you go back if life was so good? However, some people did return. So um, if you want to put a figure on that, uh, scholarship plays around with something like 4,000 people might have returned, but we don't have any archaeological evidence for a big spike in settlement growth. So this was really very few. Uh, you can you can perhaps talk about that in the ancient uh, yeah in terms of an ancient conflict between leavers and remainers. So <laughs> yeah, I mean an ancient Brexit. yeah an ancient Brexit just <laughs> under different terms. So many people will have stayed in Babylon, but some will have returned, and, and this uh, yeah these will have been very conservative circles that perhaps never felt at home in Babylon. But this group that returned, that was de- um, they were decisive for the biblical literature and sanctimal period. And this is actually, this time of return is when the need for writings and reflections on the status of exile actually becomes significant. When you're in exile, it's actually not, not so decisive to reflect on your status, but the problems arose when those people, the leavers, came back to Jerusalem because obviously mm. the life in Jerusalem had kind of continued. People had taken over left houses. People had um, kind of, yeah, started their new system. People were appointed. And then those people came from the outside and thought they'd be welcomed with open arms and they would be given back their possessions but obviously this didn't happen. So then a little kind of culture conflict broke broke up. Uh, the Book of Itzekel, um, the oldest texts in the Book of Itzekel actually make up um, a separation between those that stayed in Jerusalem and those that were exiled in 597, this first wave of exiles. And actually the, the big idea in the Book of Itzekel is Everyone who was left in 597 was completely punished by God. They all died out um, and all mm. the land will be given to these ones who kind of were first exiled to Babylon. When is, when is this differentiation significant? Obviously, when those returned back and wanted to, to take back the leading position in Jerusalem. So these these uh, differentiation between those that left and those that stayed actually reflects struggles for power in post-exilic times. How to deal with these uh, immigrants who are saying, actually, we are the real Israel and we suffered in exile. And then you've got those that stayed in Jerusalem all the time. You're like, why? Why should we give our possessions and let hand back all the important jobs to you? And these people who are coming back, they're, they're bringing texts with them too then. Yeah, that they're... Maybe the people who... They don't buy into the yeah, people who've, who've been exactly. there all the time. So they brought text with them, but they will they will have continued to write texts and they will have used texts kind of to cement their demands. Mm-hmm. And they, they will have written themselves into this elevated position that only the mm-hmm. exiled are the real people of Israel. This is exactly what we see until... 
Yeah, so the book of its second and the beginning starts kind of to make the case for these first exiles, for the real Israel. But then in later texts, this kind of conflict disappears, and then the text speaks of kind of gathering everyone, and um, Israel um, consists of everyone who returns. So this kind of conflict disappears after after a couple of, um, well, after yeah, a century or something like that. So obviously this power play will have played itself out over the generations hmm. in Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, I think the most you know famous verse that came out of this period for most people is the, you know the sort of by the you know by the rivers of Babylon yeah. where everybody's weeping and they're being made fun of by the Babylonians and they're telling them to sing and we're like we're not going to sing we're sad so why i mean maybe if you could frame it around that like why would a text like that have been written you know what 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 would have been the motivation what message were they trying to send um when once they had because i guess that would have been written after they had probably come back from the exile too yeah right? i think so um i would place this text firmly in persian times but um yeah um this text sends a very clear message you can't be happy in exile you have to be in jerusalem and if you're not in jerusalem mm -hmm. you have to kind of want to be back all the time <laughs> so this text actually writes very firmly against anyone Everyone who's happy in exile and doesn't miss Jerusalem. So this text, no, no, no. Mm. You have to be, you have to kind of want to be back. You can't be happy in exile. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, text is very famous in the first verses, but it's actually quite gruesome. It goes on to wish that, um, the children of the Babylonians will be dashed against, uh, against the wall. Mm. So it's actually a very gruesome text, which makes a very clear point. These people are our foes. You can't be happy in enemy land. You need to long for Jerusalem. So it's a theological program in a way. Mm. Wow. Well, this I, I hope this is as fascinating to our listeners as it has been to me, just framing really big theological and sort of biblical narratives, you know, from this this one experience, this sort of painful experience in in the sixth century, but also like you said, you know, the resilience that these people you know, gain from that and how they had to re reframe their story, rewrite their narrative. And it's a narrative that we're still reading thousands of years later. So I guess success, I guess they did it. They did a great job, uh, reframing their story. Um, Anya, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for walking us through this. Um, Helen, thank you as always. And, uh, yeah, thank you listeners. We will see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Thanks. Bye. Bye.